Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. It's primary day. Have you voted? In Connecticut, polls close at 8 p.m. Today, voters affiliated with major parties have the chance to vote for candidates in the races for governor, lieutenant governor, treasurer, attorney general. And depending on where you live, other down-ballot races include those for the General Assembly and Congress, including in the 5th District. Connecticut is one of four states with primaries today. Later, we're going to check in with Vermont's top election official about how its primaries are run. Under Connecticut law, unaffiliated voters are excluded from casting a ballot today. Coming up, we're going to learn why that is and find out how other states handle primaries. There are a lot of options out there. Have you heard of jungle primaries, for example? More on that later. Now, first, I want to welcome back to the show Connecticut Secretary of the State, Denise Merrill. Now, if you voted already today since polls opened at 6 a.m., we also want to hear from you. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And I want to welcome uh, Denise Merrill into our studio. Denise, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good morning. And how long <laughs> have you been uh, the Secretary of the State? Remind our listeners. Uh, almost eight years now. And before that, I was in the General Assembly for quite a while. <laughs> and remind us, uh, when we're thinking about the primary, again, it's August. People are still trying to squeeze in their, their summer vacations before school starts at the end of the, uh, the month. Uh, you know, what is traditionally the turnout for a primary? Well, the turnouts vary by interest in that particular primary. Uh, not oddly, people are very interested in some and not so interested in others. So this is a, an interesting primary. There are lots of candidates. So uh, our turnout varies between about between 20 and 30 percent, but it varies widely by district and area. So, for example, there is a particularly hot race in the fifth CD a congressional district. So maybe you'll get a slightly higher turnout, particularly in some towns. 20 to 30 percent, that's mm. abysmal. Yes, it sounds abysmal, doesn't it? <laughs> and that's of registered party voters. So we have about a million people registered either as Republicans or Democrats in the state. So, yeah, you do the math. <laughs> now, coming up, we are going to talk about uh, the unaffiliated voters who are locked out of voting today. We know that they make up the largest block of voters uh, here in the state of Connecticut, uh, more than 800,000. So we're going to talk more about uh, how our primaries uh, came to be. We're going to hear from people. You can join our conversation again, 860-275-7266. So 6 a.m., um, how's it going so far? Uh, I was just over voting in my precinct in Hartford. There was a pretty steady stream of people voting. Um, you know, it's hard to predict. And of course, it's raining. That does depress turnout, whether we like it or not. Um, maybe if the rain clears up, it'll get a little stronger. Now, we've mentioned uh, to our listeners that um, if they voted, we want to hear from you. We want to hear about the experience you had, um, especially if you've um, encountered a problem. Now, if that happens, mm -hmm. uh, Secretary Merrill, um, what should people do? Say they go to their polling uh, site and their name isn't on uh, the registry, so to speak. 
Uh, yes, we do have a hotline, but usually those problems can be resolved at the polling place, although unfortunately, I think, we don't have what we call election day registration for primaries. That was a change we made uh, about four years ago now, where you can, if your name is not on the list, and it should be, you think, uh, for whatever reason, you can correct that by registering and voting right on election day. We don't have that for primary day. So there is a hotline, a state hotline you can call that's uh, peopled by uh, both the Election Enforcement Commission and my office, where we can resolve many of the questions and disputes. Uh, and I can give that number later if you'd like. It's an 866. Eight, I think I have it, 866-733-2463. And they can also email elections at ct.gov. That's right. Day. And we have people standing by in the office. We've had a few little glitches already this morning. We always do because we have 700-odd polling places in Connecticut, which is a lot. Uh, but now we are, I think we're much better off than we have been in the last few years. We now have emergency plans. And that was really the result of the hurricanes and storms we had maybe in 2012 and 2013. And so now I think there's much more preparation done. We do a lot more training with all the registrars. We have kind of a unique system in Connecticut, which is that you have two registrars of voters in each town in the state. Now, the smallest town in the state has about 850 people, and it ranges up to Bridgeport, which has literally hundreds of thousands. So it's a, it's a very different experience in different places, but there's a Republican and a Democratic registrar in each town, and they are responsible for holding elections, and they are elected people. So my office gives loose direction and tries to get everyone to follow the laws, um, but that's they are accountable directly to their communities. Mm. Now, uh, because your office, as you say, gives loose direction, is that something that you would want to see change? I know in past uh, election cycles there are issues, particularly in certain uh, big cities in the state of Connecticut, where there is criticism of a particular registrar or voters, how they might handle a situation. Should there be more oversight from your state um, office? There has been more oversight in the last couple of years. I know people might remember there was a problem in Hartford in my own precinct uh, maybe two or three years ago now. Uh, and we did put a monitor into Hartford. A lot of times these things are not deliberate. They're really uh, mistakes. Um, you know, it's more a competence level problem because many of the registrars are not paid a lot of money. They're very part-time in a lot of places. So we do the best we can. But, yes, sometimes we do come in with more oversight. We have more laws now that allow my office to come in and ensure that people's civil rights are being uh, re regarded. So um, I think it's better than it has been, honestly. There's always going to be little mistakes here and there. I've heard of about a few of them this morning already. Uh, but we're, we're in pretty good shape. And then now, of course, we have this whole new question of cybersecurity. Uh, which has everyone concerned about the safety and security of elections. So we have a whole new responsibility there. You mentioned cybersecurity, so I, I will jump a, a little ahead there. Uh, you are the co-chair of the National Association of Secretaries of State Election Cybersecurity Task Force. Uh, when uh, people hear about uh, foreign governments uh, interfering with our presidential election, you know that people are concerned, and then your job is to allay those concerns. In Connecticut, how safe is our election system? I think it's quite safe. Uh, I think the biggest reason it's safe is, ironically, exactly what we were talking about before, highly decentralized, hosted in each town on uh, tallying machines, which are these scanners that you're all familiar with if you vote. We vote on paper. You stick it in the scanner. It reads your ballot. 
and we audit afterwards. And there are lots of checks and balances. So I'm very confident that our actual vote totals are probably pretty good. And then we have two weeks in which we certify the results in case there are errors. And there are errors, transposition of numbers and that sort of thing. So that system is good. The problem we had with cybersecurity was with the list, the voter list itself. And the biggest problem is not that they're getting in. There were, there were, I have to say, Russian agencies did try to get into our voting system, our voter registry uh, in 2016. Uh, we didn't actually know about it at the time at the state level because it was the Department of Homeland Security that was watching all this. Uh, since that time, we are now scanning that system. D DHS has come in to help us uh, see how secure our system is. Um, I think we're in pretty good shape. Uh, we did deflect those attempts, but they will come back. I, I do believe that. And I think the biggest thing they were trying to achieve was confusion. And that can happen if, if for example, some names were taken off or added to the voter list on Election Day. Uh, even though we have paper backup lists, you'll notice that when you go to check in, you're going to get checked off on paper still in Connecticut. Uh, nonetheless, it could sow some confusion and doubt, and I think that's the biggest problem. We talked to you uh, back in 2016 uh, when uh, the secretaries of the state uh, were notified in these particular states that hackers tried uh, to get into your uh, databases, and there was concern that there was a big time lapse between when election officials found out. Now you have a security clearance. This happens again. A much smoother process heading into November? Absolutely. I am now. Who would have, who would have known I'd have to get security clearance? But yes, I have security clearance. They will now let me know if there's something going on. We have much better communication with both the DHS and the FBI, with whom we always communicated before Election Day in case anybody saw anything one way or the other. So it's much better than it was. I do think it, it will continue to be a problem, but people should feel like we are on the job and we are trying very hard to allay these problems. I have to say also, though, that the biggest concern I have um, is at the local level because most of these attackers of our system get in through phishing emails. We're all familiar with those. And they look like they're from your best friend or your husband's law partner or whatever. And you open that, and instantly you have allowed someone in. So we have 169 towns. Each one has a router, and each one needs to be secured. So that's what we're working on at the, at the present. I understand that um, your office received federal money for security consultants also to educate and bolster uh, cybersecurity. Is this something that trickles down to the 169 towns? Absolutely. We're going to have to send people in, particularly to the larger ones. But I have more concerns about small towns because they don't have IT staff. They don't have departments of people that know about computers. Some of the towns are only open, you know, some days a week. So those are the ones that we have to get in and make sure everybody's changing their passwords and that the routers are secure and that sort of thing. And we will probably have to give them assistance with all that. This is where we live. Denise Merrill's here with us for the hour, Connecticut Secretary of the State. You can join our conversation at 860-275-7266. And we want to hear about your voting experience today. Uh, if you've run into a problem, we do want to hear from you. And we've got uh, Connecticut's uh, top election official here uh, to also answer your questions or concerns. I did want to uh, find out more, um, even though we talked about this is abysmal 20 to 30 percent voter turnout, voter registration is up. Why is that? Yeah, I, you know, it's so interesting. We do have record registration, I have to say, since 2016. Since November of 2016, it's like the public was suddenly galvanized. 
one way or the other, and I, I m- must make sure I tell people, nothing has really changed. There are s- the same kind of uh, difference between Democratic-Republican registration. So there wasn't a particular surge for either party. There are steadily, in the last few years, more unaffiliated voters. And I think that's more a reflection of our time than anything else, because people are hesitant to affiliate with almost anything now. Uh, So they feel it gives them more choice or for whatever reason. So we did see a larger number of unaffiliates registering. Uh, And who are the newly registered voters? A lot of young people. Uh, The the most striking thing, I think, was the number of 18 to 24-year-olds Routinely, we get in a two-year period. We after a, a presidential election, we'll get maybe twenty, twenty-four thousand. We got forty-four thousand new eighteen to twenty-four-year-olds registering. So that's that's very encouraging. There's other uh, ways to encourage Connecticut residents to register to vote. I understand there's a motor voter law. Could you describe uh, that? And do you feel that that's taken a um, you know played a part in the registrations going on? Absolutely. I think it played a major part. Honestly, you know, people like to say, well, the surprise of the 2016 election is what did it. I don't think so. I really think it's the ease with which you can now register at the DMV. And not only the ease, but the clerk now reminds you. So when you come in to change your registration or your driver's license or whatever you're doing, they say, oh, you're eligible to vote. Would you like to register? And right there, you can go into our online voter registration system, which compares your information with a database they have. So that's made it just vastly easier for people to just instantly um, get registered. Then, of course, it still goes to the local level to get checked out and certified. Uh, But that alone, most of our registrations are now coming in through the DMV. That was not true before. Uh, Something you had mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, Secretary Merrill, about um, why you think uh, there are uh, more uh, of these new voters that are unaffiliated. Maybe there's some frustration with the major parties. We're getting a tweet. Someone wrote, for years I voted in Democratic and Republican primaries despite not identifying as a member. I just registered as one so I could vote. Tired of that, disgusted by both major parties now unaffiliated, same person should have the same right to vote. What's your take on that? As we, uh, Before we go to a break again, we're going to be talking more about our primary system. Yes. Um, this, this law in Connecticut, so Connecticut has what's called a closed primary system. That means you have to be a member of that party to vote in that party's primary. And this uh, goes back to, actually, there was a Supreme Court case in the 1980s that reaffirmed the right of parties to choose who votes in their primary. So it depends on if you view a party as, uh, as a, a primary as a party function or as a public function. And we can talk more about that difference. But that's the, that's the basis of why Connecticut has the closed primary. I want to take a quick call. Uh, Lou is calling from Southington. Lou, go ahead. Hi, good morning. I was calling because um, I recently uh, was uh, researching the candidates to vote for, and I had a hard time finding the list. And uh, when I did go and vote this morning, I found a lot of names that I didn't find in my research. And I was wondering if your guest has a suggestion of where, you know, possible voters today could go to find the full list. Uh, Thank you, Lou. I know I just went to the Secretary of the State's website. And depending on the town you live, you can actually see the ballot. How long ago was that put up online so people could maybe do a little research on the candidates? Uh, not that long ago, because in a primary, there's a very short time frame. So we wait until we get the certified list from that town or from that district. So it takes a while, but it is all up there. So, And uh, we have a site called myvote.ct.gov, 
and you can go there and find pretty much uh, anything you need in terms of candidates. But it does take a while for us to get the information. Again, Denise Merrill in studio with us this hour. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, Denise Merrill, again, is Connecticut Secretary of the State. Now, have you voted in the primary today? How'd it go? We want to hear from you. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Coming up, Connecticut's primaries are closed to unaffiliated voters, the largest block of voters in the state. How did that come to be? We heard just a little bit. We're going to hear more. And could it ever change? We want to hear from you. We know you have um, some opinions on that. Again, the number 860 and we're also going to find out how other states handled their primaries. More right after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. How did our primary system in Connecticut come to be what it is today? Joining us to help answer that question is Denise Merrill, Secretary of the State here in Connecticut. Now, not all primaries hold, not all states rather, hold primaries like ours. Some would argue opening primaries would limit polarization. Is that true? We're going to find out in just a couple of minutes. But um, uh, Secretary Merrill, I wanted to go back to you again. You'd use the term, our, our primary system is closed. We had seen another um, phrase on the, the, uh, the national National uh, Conference for State Legislatures. Uh, they meant they had said that Connecticut's partially closed. So, what is the way uh, to explain our system? Because it's up to the the parties to decide if they want to open it up to unaffiliated voters. Yes. Yeah. Um, our law permits parties to open it up to unaffiliated voters. That's what they mean when they say partially closed. There are states, I think, that still um, require it to be closed. And as did Connecticut originally. And the, the case that went to the Supreme, U.S. Supreme Court, the Julia Tashin versus I forget which party, I think it was the Republican Party. The Republican Party actually wanted to open up its primary to unaffiliated voters. This was, I think, 1984, somewhere around there. And, um, and the law forbade it at that time. So they went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, that, yes, a party does have a right to association. So it, it rested kind of on the, on the issue of freedom of association. A, a party is, is, like any organization, can decide which of their members, you know, would, who are their members and who they think should be voting to decide who their candidates are. So the, the Supreme Court case said you could not forbid it. You could allow parties to allow people in. So that's what Connecticut did. And uh, to this day, there was one, I think, brief period of time where the Republican Party did allow unaffiliated voters to vote in their primary. It didn't last very long. I don't know why. I don't know. You know, some historian out there, I'm sure, knows why. But uh, since that time, both parties have decided not to allow unaffiliated voters. And I think, that, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. And I've read that the, there are arguments for and against uh, this as everything else. But the arguments... Um, against having unaffiliated voters vote with your party are that a party has a right to decide. Its members have a right to decide who should be the candidate. And they can do things like balance the ticket. They can make sure that there's geographic representation or ethnic representation or whatever their party is interested in. They can make sure that that the broad values of their party are represented by the candidates, for example. Uh, so if you are a party that abhors uh, increases in taxes, you can make sure that your candidates are kind of in that place. Um, and so, you know, I think that that has defined the reason Connecticut has its primaries the way it does. Parties have consistently decided they just want their members to participate. We also have a convention system, which is 
another piece of all this where where party members get together and decide who the candidates will be, at least for their party. Now, you can still petition onto the ballot. And we saw that happen. (laughs) Yes, we saw that happen. uh, And we still have plenty of candidates, uh, despite, you know, the limitations of uh, the convention system. So Connecticut has kind of a winnowing process, I think, that's longer than most, which, by the way, also explains why the primaries in the summer. I get asked that every single day. Um, I do remember when primaries were in September. Um, and uh, Would pe- that impact turnout? Would there be more people showing up? Actually, there were fewer. Interestingly enough, I, this whole issue of whether open primaries would increase turnout, I think, is a very open question because I, I haven't seen definitive research one way or the other. But for me, I think there are better ways to get increased turnout. And I think Connecticut's done a lot of them. The biggest one we talked about before was allowing people to register at the DMV and other agencies, frankly. Um, and also things like Election Day registration, uh, where we can fix the list. You know, if you're not on the list, we can fix it up. If you suddenly get the urge to vote because you've heard something uh, somewhere in the media, you can go down and register to vote on Election Day. We had 30,000 people register and vote on the first the first year we had Election Day registration. So there are ways, I think, to encourage at least voter registration and probably turnout as a result. Uh, that are pro- maybe better than opening up your primary, which presents other problems. We're going to talk more about the primary system, but I did want to ask why Connecticut does not allow early voting. Oh, that's a very sad story, at least from my point of view. I have tried very hard. That is the one area that I think we need to do more work. In Connecticut, the uh, election day is fixed by the Constitution, the state Constitution. So in order to open it up, as 38 other states have done, you've seen it, and people talk about it all the time. Hey, in Texas, in Texas, they vote for something like 30 days. In Colorado, they have mail-in voting, as does Oregon and Washington and several of the other states. They love it. If you voted in the last election, they mail you a ballot, you mail it back. Um, so we have not been able to do that because it requires a constitutional amendment to our state constitution. It's a high bar. You have to have um, the the legislature has to vote it in. Two different legislatures have to vote it in if you don't get a 75 percent vote. Uh, it has turned out to be rather partisan in the last few years. It wasn't before, but like everything else, uh, people are trying to figure out, well, what does that mean for me and my party? And uh, so there's different takes on it. But we have not been able to get it passed. It was on the ballot, actually. I got it on the ballot in 2014, and it went down. So, and I'm still not sure why, uh, but people, I think people were kind of confused about the way it was worded. That would have allowed us to do any version of these things, you know, whether more absentee balloting, you know, most states, you can just get an absentee ballot anytime you think you want one. You don't have to have a reason. Um, so we have, I'm still working on it, and I still think it, it's something the public wants. Polling shows at least 80% of the people want to have more opportunities to vote. I do think it would increase turnout. This is where we live. Denise Merrill is with us, Connecticut Secretary of the State. And we wanted to get more background on how primaries evolved in our country. Joining us now by phone, Seth Maskett, Professor of Political Science and Director of the Center on American Politics at the University of Denver. Seth, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me on. I wanted to start out first uh, with the uh, confusion about primaries. What are some common misperceptions of uh, the purpose of a primary? Um, You know, a lot of people, and this is often the way primaries are portrayed, is that they're just seen as the first step in an election. That is, okay, first we do this sort of culling thing, and then we have kind of a runoff. 
And really, it's very different from the sort of general election that we're going to have in November. Um, this is primary is simply one of many ways that a party could choose its nominees. It's basically choosing what it sees as the best person to put up against uh, the other major party um, in the fall election. And so there's there's really kind of a, a different calculation that uh, the primary voters or caucus goers or convention delegates. Um, would use to to reach that decision about what exactly it means for someone to be the best sort of nominee. Uh, you're col- you're uh, in Colorado. I'm just curious about some of how uh, these primaries have changed in recent years and why they vary from state to state. Here in Connecticut, we have a, a partially closed primary. Yeah, um, Colorado's actually just been experimenting uh, just this year with a new system. It, it's traditionally been uh, uh, mainly a closed process. Um, where uh, unaffiliated voters who, who are, you know, uh, roughly a third of Colorado's electorate were not able to uh, participate in primaries uh, until this year. Um, there was a, an initiative that, that passed recently, and this year they've opened it up. And it, it was a somewhat unusual process in Colorado because it's both a uh, – it was open to unaffiliated voters in the primary and also an all-mail-in ballot. So if you were unaffiliated, you received both the Democratic and Republican ballots in the mail, and you could only mail back one of them. If you mailed back both of them, they would both be spoiled. Um, so that, that had the potential to be uh, kind of chaotic. Uh, you know, I was expecting there to be uh, you know, quite a lot of spoiled ballots, and it actually turned out it, it, it came off pretty well. Um, the ballot spoilage for unaffiliated uh, ballots was, was only around 2%. Uh, the, the state and the campaigns made a real effort to uh, explain to unaffiliated voters just how the how the ballot system worked, and it actually came off pretty pretty effectively. And in other states, are you seeing uh, different experimentation? Uh, just recently, uh, I'm curious about uh, Maine has ranked choice voting, and then of course there's California. For some time, they have something where the top two uh, move on, or it's also called jungle primary. Yeah, there's quite a bit of experimentation going on, and this is fairly common. Um, states will often uh, tinker with uh, their rules just to see if, if they can get, uh, you know, usually responding to what, what they perceived as um, problems the last time around. Uh, and right now there's a, there's a fair amount of dissatisfaction with the major political parties. A lot of, uh, you know, voters are concerned with what they see as, you know, party insiders steering things too much or, you know, corruption in the parties, and they, they often want to find ways to uh, to change things around. There was a fair amount of criticism of presidential caucuses in 2016, um, particularly on the Democratic side, um, and a number of states, including Colorado, uh, including Nevada, have, have made uh, have switched away from uh, caucuses and moved toward primaries. Um, and there's, you know, there's... And even at the at the local level, you'll you'll sometimes see a lot of uh, switching around in between years. I know that uh, Seth, you and other political scientists have authored uh, papers, done research on, um, you know, the the question of whether primaries should be open. Um, some argue that if that was the case, it would uh, reduce polarization. What is uh, um, what have you found when you've studied this uh, question? Yeah, this is. Um, you- we were looking into a lot of assumptions that, uh, you know, that, that politicians and the political reformers particularly tend to make um, when they argue for changing the primary system. Often we'll hear, well, if we open things up to uh, unaffiliated or, or uh, independent voters, 
um, that maybe we will see a more moderate, uh, less polarized political system. After all, uh, you would have, you know, politicians would need to try to appeal to these independent voters uh, in the primaries, and they'd have more of a voice. They'd maybe pull the politicians away from the extremes. So uh, what we did was really look at um, the changes in primary laws um, at the state legislative level going back several decades um, and just looked at what happened when uh, when the, the parties changed how they nominate candidates. And it turns out these rule changes really kind of don't make much of a difference in terms of the sorts of candidates that get nominated and elected. Um, whether a state has a, a very open primary system or a very closed one, it doesn't really seem to change how how partisan, how polarized the uh, the politicians that are nominated in that system. Uh, this is where we live. Seth Maskett's on, on the phone with us, professor of political science and director of the Center on American Politics at the University of Denver. We're exploring uh, why uh, primaries are set up uh, so differently uh, depending on the state you live. Again, we hear often from unaffiliated voters who are not able to vote today on primary day uh, because they're not registered with the two major parties. If you're one of them, you can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Uh, we did hear uh, from a, a caller who says that, um, you know, her blood boils because uh, as an unaffiliated voter, she can't vote in the primary. Um, also, Seth, we hear frustration uh, nationwide with the two major parties. Is it is it um, possible that uh, one day we won't be, ha- be stuck with these two major parties? Could there be multiple parties uh, out there that, uh, repeat, that could be relevant in the way our system is set up? It's unlikely, given the rules that we have. Um, you know, we have, given the type of elections that we have, where, where we sort of have, uh, you know, first past the post, whoever gets the most votes wins the entire district. Um, you know, a lot of studies show that uh, in, in systems like that, both here and around the globe, um, you tend to end up with just two major parties. Uh, you know, voters see a vote for a third party is essentially a, a wasted vote or a vote that might get their, their least desired candidate elected. So voters tend not to vote for third, fourth, or fifth parties. So we'd, we'd probably have to shift to something like proportional voting, um, where you know if, if one party gets 10% of the votes, they get 10% of the seats in the state legislature or the Congress, um, for anyone to have any real incentive to, uh, to vote for a smaller party system. Uh, you know, it doesn't mean it can't happen. Um, you, we have had you know, periods in American history where... You've had third parties, at least in the short run, uh, you know, kind of making a difference. Um, you know, the, the Republican Party, when it got started in the 1850s, was was kind of a third party um, that was, you know, messing with the the the, the two party system for a little while. Um, but it tends to, you know, two parties tends to be kind of the the stable version here. Join our conversation eight six zero two seven five seven two six six here on where we live. Kurt is calling from North Haven. Kurt, go ahead. Hi. Um... You know, I uh, lived in Connecticut for about 35 years and uh, grew up out west. And I, you know, I find the arguments against open primaries that are used are the same, you know, sort of arguments that are, uh, you know, uh, made against those who want to do gerrymandering. I find it, you know, it's a it's a way of controlling the system by uh, the political parties. And I think all the real progressive states have got these open primaries, which just make a lot of sense. I registered as Democrat because in the town that I live in, I want to vote in that one, but often I want to vote in the Republican primary. The fact that it, I have to change my affiliation so far in advance, 
the primary, you know, feels to me like voter suppression. It's much more real than the voter suppression that you have by requiring ID. Um, so, I, you know, I find that, you know, the state's full of, I guess what I would call pinos or progressives in name only. And it seems like it's right in the Connecticut tradition of using property taxes, which are so regressive, to fund everything. And the fact that Connecticut, I believe, was the last state that gives a vote to women. Um, I think it's really time we have open primaries. I would have loved to vote the Republican one today, but I would have had to decide that, what, three months ago? Mm. It just seems ludicrous. Thank you, Kurt, for your call. I'm going to have our Secretary of the State, Denise Merrill, respond to what you were talking about. Yeah, I I tend to agree. I think this three-month waiting period, uh, it's instituted, of course, to stop what they call raiding because uh, there's always a fear that one party will uh, deliberately vote for the weakest candidate of the other party in order to gain an advantage. I don't think there's any proof that that actually happens. But uh, so I think the waiting period is very confusing and and difficult for people. And I do think it does uh, impact your right to vote for the party of your choice. You know, it's it's interesting listening to Seth talk about um, about open versus closed primaries, and it reminds me that it depends on your point of view whether this is an, as he says, the first stage in an election. So, is this the pre-election to the election, or is this a party function? And the the party function part is interesting because the public pays for the election, but it really is a party function to sort of winnow the process. So, it's I have I, I, you know. You just have to be aware of the way you're thinking about it. We got a tweet from Jackie who writes, if you do not identify as a member of a particular party, why do you feel you should have a voice in determining the candidate for that party? Uh, Seth, did you want to respond to, to Jackie's sentiment? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the Secretary of State was, was uh, summing this up correctly, that this is, you know, parties really have kind of both public and private functions. They're both uh, uh, you know, they, they serve kind of a public good, but uh, they're also in some ways private organizations. I, I tend to take the view that, you know, the, literally the most important a decision that a party will make is who is this nominee going to be? Who's the public face that they're putting out there? Um, and that that decision should be made by people who have taken the effort to call themselves members of that party, um, that Republicans should not be picking Democratic nominees and vice versa. But, uh, yes, you know, others might take the view that, um, you know, this is, this is an election being paid for by taxpayers. And if you're a taxpayer, you should, you know, if you're, if you're a resident, if you're a citizen, you should have the right to uh, participate in some function and, and not be prohibited from, uh, from joining uh, this election simply because of your party affiliation or lack thereof. Uh, uh, Secretary Merrill, we mentioned how uh, we mentioned about or talked about Connecticut's convention system. Uh, why not let just let the the party then pick the candidates of the convention, and then everyone votes in the in November? Why is there a primary then? Well, that's been asked, and uh, again, it's it's an effort by a party to get people who really are committed to the party to the table to make that decision. Now, of course, you can always petition on as a Democrat, even if you don't get. I mean, and we're seeing a great example of that this year. You can see that we have uh, two candidates on the Republican uh, on the Democratic side and five on the Republican side just for governor. So there are lots of races where someone did not get chosen at the convention, but nonetheless has enough uh, support at the convention to go on. So again, it's a winnowing process by the party. Uh, Larry's calling from Meriden. Larry, go ahead. Oh, I don't think Larry's there anymore. Uh, I will try to get his comment here. He said, I just attempted to vote. I went in to vote, wasn't able to. I thought I was a registered Dem, but it turns out in records I was a registered Republican. Uh, what should Larry do there in Meriden? 
What advice do you have for him? <laughs> yeah, we get uh, some of this. My advice always is check on the website first of, up ahead of time to make sure you're registered the way you think you remember you are. A lot of times people registered a long time ago, and it's not uncommon to forget what party you're registered with. Myvote.ct.gov, you can check it out. But uh, unfortunately for Larry, I don't think there's a recourse. If he's a registered Republican, he can vote in the Republican primary. <laughs> Uh, Seth Maskett, before we let you go, uh, I did uh, want to bring back uh, the the point that Maine has the ranked choice voting. Can you talk a little bit about that and when they enacted that? So that was um, they just uh, are trying it at the statewide level just this year, and um, it's it's really pretty fascinating system. There's a number of cities uh, that have been using uh, ranked choice voting, um, particularly in the West Coast, uh, for a number of years now, and in some ways, uh, you know, there's there's some evidence suggesting that ranked choice voting is the best at producing uh, the result that the most people want. Uh, that is, you know, you have fewer instances where uh, two more desirable candidates will split the vote, and the third candidate that no one wants ends up walking away with the election. Um, the problem is it's 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 much more taxing for voters. Um, if you if, particularly if you looked at Maine's ballots, there were a lot of candidates on there. And to be able to sort of go through like three different rankings and decide who your favorite was is really asking quite a bit of voters who, you know, just typically tend not to know that much about the people who are on the ballot, um, particularly in uh, a non-presidential year, particularly in a primary. Um, so, you know, my I guess my main worry would be that if, if you're asking that much of voters, you know, fewer people are going to participate. Um, I don't think they had a major problem with turnout, though, in Maine this year. So I, I think we're sort of we're still trying to figure out the lessons from Maine this year. It remains a pretty interesting example. So is it too soon to tell if other states would follow Maine's uh, example? Uh, it's probably too soon, but, uh, you know, I don't think we saw any of the, you know, the major negatives that people were worried about, um, you know, with, with dramatically low turnout. So it's it's certainly possible that, um, uh, you know, other states will look to that example and say, you know, maybe this is maybe this is the right way to be doing things. Uh, Secretary Merrill, what's your take on, on ranked voting? I think it's extremely interesting to watch, but I am always conscious of the fact that they don't call us the land of steady habits for nothing. Um, I think it would be very difficult to make that dramatic a change in Connecticut um, unless there were things that really felt people felt were so dramatically wrong with what's going on that they'd be willing to to take that on. Yeah, I did see the ballot in Maine. It is pretty complicated, and it asks you to make a lot of choices but And the math is very interesting. It seems like it would be quicker because you'd be able to tell right away if anybody got the 50 percent or didn't, and then you would do the math to see, well, who's next. So it's intriguing. I think it probably does result in the person with the most support winning, and that's important. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I want to thank Seth Maskett for joining us, professor of political science and director of the Center on American Politics at the University of Denver. Seth, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me on. Connecticut Secretary of the State Denise Merrill will stay with us as we check in on another state with the primary today, Vermont. Its primary is different from Connecticut's. We'll find out more. And again, if you've already voted today, we want to hear from you. Join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. It's primary day in Connecticut. Polls are open until 8 p.m. Don't forget to vote. And to find out which candidates are moving ahead to the general election, I'll be joining Colin McEnroe and John Dankosky tonight for special coverage on WMPR. We're going to be joined by reporters in the field and analysts from where we live's candidate interviews, Velasa Koo and Jonathan Wharton. Again, you can listen tonight starting at 8. Now, Connecticut is one of four states with a primary today. Our state's top election officials with us, Denise Merrill, and her counterpart in Vermont is joining us now by phone, uh, Secretary Jim Condes. Uh, Secretary Condes, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate uh, being here. So let's talk about what you're seeing in Vermont. Um, in Connecticut, uh, Secretary Merrill has mentioned that a voter registration is up. Is this something similar to what Vermont is seeing? Well, we're up a bit, but mainly because we have automatic voter registration, which we implemented in January of 2017. And what we've seen by now, it's now a little over a year and a half, is that it's kind of leveled out from the standpoint of we don't have the swings that you see post-election. For instance, we typically would lose anywhere from 30 to 50,000 voters uh, during the off-election cycle um, as people, you know, moving and, and uh, uh, people who had had already moved or passed away uh, for whatever for whatever reason, and so it would typically, uh, as the town clerks start making their uh, doing their list maintenance, it would drop. For instance, in Vermont, we had um, about 470 thousand, and it, would, it might drop to as low as 425 thousand, um, and then start working its way back up as you lead into the election cycle. But this year, what we've seen is that it's remained fairly constant in a in a band of about 10,000. So it's it's been somewhere between 16. We ended at around 470,000, and I think right now it's about 465,000, and we expect that number to go up as as um, uh, we approach uh, November. Now, Vermont also has an open primary system. Tell us about your system and how far back uh, before the, what did was this enacted. So uh, we do have an open primary system. Um, anybody can walk into. If you're a registered voter, you can you can uh, vote in any of the primaries. You only get to vote in one, but you can vote in any in uh, any of the three primaries. And we have three major parties here in Vermont. We have the Re- Republicans, Democrats, and the Progressive Party. Uh, and what happens is, <coughs> excuse me, when you walk into the polling place, you will be given three ballots. Um, and you are allowed to vote on one, and you discard the other two. And, and that's been in place, I think, pretty much, I think it actually went into place in about 1980 or so, uh, obviously well before I became uh, secretary. I, I, I came in at the same time as uh, uh, Secretary Merrill in 2011. Uh, but it, it's... Um, uh, it would. What we did was uh, here in Vermont was they worked on with the parties, and as as I think I heard Denise say earlier, it's a it really is a nominating election for the parties. And uh, in Vermont, since we have open um, primaries and and Vermonters are pretty independently minded, they did not want to go to a registered. Uh, party and registration of party officials or parties. Uh, And this was an agreement. The only time that we actually uh, identify which ballot you're pulling is the presidential primary every four years, whereas you approach the polling place, you will say, I want the Republican ballot or the Democratic ballot. 
Now, when you uh, look at the open primary system over the years, is it uh, can you glean that there's more participation because of your open system? That's a tough question to answer. Um, I would say there's no real way to directly compare. I mean, there's so many different differences across the states that that occur, for instance, demographics, geography, elections administration, and and other factors. And, and of course, the primaries are driven by uh, the candidates, the number of primaries that are existing, the, the the counties or the or the localities where where the primaries are being held. So there's so many different factors. I, it's hard to kind of say whether one way one works better than another one. Uh, we should note that Vermont ranked number one in MIT's elections performance performance index. Uh, could you respond to uh, the fact that uh, voters there um, are satisfied with the election system? Well, we're we're pretty proud of that ranking, um, and we went from my first general election was the 2012, and at that point, obviously, it was all done by my predecessor setting up everything. We were 38th at that time, and there was a period of time, I think, from probably around 2010 through you know through right now, uh, where um, states are. are probably putting in new systems or whatever. We were fortunate we put a new system in in 2015 and 16. Um, <coughs> excuse me. And we went uh, we went from 2012 38th to 2014. We were 16th. And then this year for the 16 election, we were number one. And I might add, um, Connecticut came in in the top 10. So, uh, you know, I commend uh, Secretary Merrill for that, too, because uh, I think that uh, uh, th- that is, it, it, the percentage-wise between states was very, very minimal. Uh, I think we came in at 86 percent, and and Connecticut came in at 80 percent. That's a real good position for all of us to be in. Uh, Jim Condos is on the phone with us, Vermont Secretary of the State. Uh, there's a caller on the line now has a question for Connecticut Secretary Secretary of the State Denise Merrill, who's in studio with me. Michael from Hebron, go ahead. We've just got a couple minutes. Yeah, so I, I'm about to go vote, and I, I looked at my registration online, like she suggested a couple of days ago, and I noticed that there was a message actually this morning when I checked again. I just wanted to be double sure that I was registered for my party, and uh, there was a message saying that you're going to be moving your systems in the next month to like a new a new delivery system. And I, I work in information technologies. I was wondering, is that has that been really thought through and so close to a midterm election is do you guys have any fail safes built into that process yeah you should be aware that's just a, a migration of the portal itself to the government portal and it's more a design thing than an actual content thing the content will remain the same Thank you, Michael, for your call. I did want to uh, ask you, Secretary Merrill, uh, we're hearing about um, Vermont's system again. Uh, they're ranked number one in elections performance. Connecticut's number 10. Mm-hmm. But anything that we can learn in um, strengthening our system here in Connecticut from other states? Well, yes, actually, those rankings are based on measures that states have taken to increase uh, voter registration participation. The biggest reason we're not like number one or two is because we don't have early voting. (laughs) So it's just an indication. Uh, I think that's obviously where we should go next. I think that would improve people's participation more than anything else we could do.
And then I wanted to let our listeners know again, those who have voted, those who have yet to vote, I'm one of them and plan on doing it this afternoon. Polls again uh, close at 8 p.m. here in Connecticut. Resources uh, our uh, residents in Connecticut should know before they head out uh, with any last minute questions before they head out to vote. Secretary Merrill. Well, again, go to the website, myvote.ct.gov. You can find out anything you want to know, but just make sure you have some form of ID doesn't have to be a photo, doesn't have to be a driver's license. Although you might be asked for a driver's license, you can use lots of other things. And you can even sign an affidavit saying, yes, I'm that person on the list. The biggest problem you might have is if you are not on that list, you will not be able to vote. And so you need to make sure that you are properly registered. But should be, it's been relatively smooth today. And I just hope people show up because it's terribly important. Also, legislative session uh, begins uh, in the later fall. Any um, uh, proposals that you're going to be introducing on behalf of your office to strengthen our system? Yes. Actually, I am a big believer in getting people early. And so I am going to propose that we pre-register 16-year-olds to vote when they're 18. Doesn't mean they're going to vote when they're 16, but there's a lot of evidence that, uh, this, I'm saying this as a former teacher, uh, that when you feel you're part of something, you're much more likely to participate. So I think registering 16-year-olds, particularly as they can get their driver's license then, uh, and they'll be able to feed right into our system, would be a great idea. So I'm going to propose it, and I am going to bring back early voting. Hopefully, we'll get it through this time. The uh, 16-year-old measure, has that come up before? No. No, we have 17-year-olds who will be 18 uh, by November are allowed to register and vote in both, uh, by the way, in the primary today. Um, But you have to be 18 by um, November in order to be able to vote or register. This would just bring the registration age down. I want to thank Denise Merrill again, Connecticut Secretary of the State. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Lucy. I think you'll be on air later tonight when WMPR's uh, special <laughs> coverage begins at 8. Also, Vermont Secretary of the State, Jim Condos, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, this is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Lydia Brown. Special thanks to Carmen Baskoff and Kyone Wolf. Again, uh, polls close at 8 p.m. Don't forget to vote. And you can uh, stay tuned to NPR and WNPR for more coverage of the primaries. Uh, again, thanks for listening. And learn more about our show, wmpr.org slash where we live.